0: The Way Out podcast, episode 87.
1: My name is John Mabry and I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic and addict. And I kept that hidden for so long and I, I wanted to be I would rather somebody uh, know me as the uh, the amputee that I am from a car accident that I was in or uh, for, for my roles as an as an actor in, in Hollywood on NCIS and ER and Superbad. I mean, I wanted to be labeled anything but an alcoholic and an addict. Mm. That was the worst thing that I could possibly be called. And now I'm, I'm grateful to be able to uh, to, to, to say that publicly and, and, and live my truth. Man, I'm just a garden variety drunken alcoholic from uh, San Antonio, Texas, born and raised in Texas. And I had a, a really easy upbringing and I had some uh, traumatic experiences that happened in my life that that steered me and mean and, um, and really flipped my life upside down, uh, literally and figuratively, got me addicted to painkillers through, through a car accident that I was in. And I ended up uh, going off on a, a decade plus run of, of alcohol and, and substance use disorder, undiagnosed PTSD, and um, found through ego seeking activities, through skydiving and acting in Hollywood and partying at the Playboy Mansion, that that was gonna fill all the voids that I had in my life and all it did was just create more void and I ended up a, a man living in a trailer uh, down by the river. Welcome.
0: Thank you for joining us on this week's installment of The Way Out, sharing stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. The Way Out does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. Our purpose is to share with you One episode at a time, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. The Way Out podcast is sponsored by Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous, online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends in meetings and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check out the official website of The Way Out Podcast at www.wayoutcast.com. There you will find links to our latest episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Radio FM. You can also follow The Way Out Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Help us get the message out that lifelong recovery from alcoholism and addiction is possible by giving us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. The Way Out podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and I'll be your host for this week's episode, which is packed with spiritual truth from beginning to end. John Mabry's journey to living in recovery and living in his self-described truth is a powerful lesson on the toll addiction and alcoholism takes on us, especially when denial and lack of acceptance of the true nature of our condition reign supreme. His insight on early childhood trauma is a welcome addition to those of us who have suffered similarly. Listen up. John, welcome to the Way Out podcast. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to be on with us and share your
1: story with the Way Out podcast audience. Thanks for thanks for coming on. Hey, what a pleasure. What an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So why don't you do me a favor, John, and introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience for those who are not familiar with you, your story, and your work.
1: All right, man. So, yeah, my name is John Mabry, and I'm a grateful, recovering alcoholic and addict, and I kept that hidden for so long, and I, I wanted to be... I would rather somebody uh, know me as the uh, the amputee that I am from a car accident that I was in, or uh, for for my roles as an as an actor in, in Hollywood on NCIS and ER and Superbad. I mean, I wanted to be labeled anything but an alcoholic and an addict. Mm. That was the worst thing that I could possibly be called. And now I'm I'm grateful to be able to uh, to, to to say that publicly and and, and live my truth. And so, uh, thank you for the for the forum to be able to um, share share with your audience. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm man, I'm just a just normal normal guy, garden variety drunken alcoholic from uh, San Antonio, Texas, born and raised in Texas. And I had a, a really easy upbringing, and I had some uh, traumatic experiences that happened in my life that. That steered me and mean, and, um, and really flipped my life upside down, uh, literally and figuratively, and I'll go into that in just a little bit, and uh, got me addicted to painkillers through, through a car accident that I was in, and I ended up uh, going off on a, a decade-plus run of, of alcohol and, and substance use disorder, undiagnosed PTSD. And um, found through ego-seeking activities, through skydiving and acting in Hollywood and partying at the Playboy Mansion, that that was going to fill all the voids that I had in my life. And all it did was just create more void. And I ended up a a man living in a trailer uh, down by the river.
0: (laughs) Uh, And and I think Chris Farley used to warn us against...
1: <laughs> exactly, yeah, man. Yeah, and I love yeah. that skit from Saturday exactly. Live, right? Where he's like, "You're gonna be sm- you're smoking a doobie, <laughs> you're gonna be living in a van down by the river." Exactly.
0: Yeah, and it's that uh, you know, it's it's brilliant and absolutely brilliant. So, uh, John, tell me about. It sounds like your childhood was uh, was was by and large pretty good. What was it like growing up in
1: Texas um, uh, uh, as a kid? Yeah. So what's crazy is. You know, usually I save this part of the part of my story to the end mm-hmm. as kind of a twist. Mm-hmm. But let's go ahead and talk about it right now. Let, let's. Uh, I feel you know, in, engaged and called to, to tell it right now. I thought I had a great childhood, and I thought that I had everything provided for me, which I did, and I thought everything went super smooth. And lo and behold, decades later, after going through all these traumatic events that had happened in my life and all this stuff. I come to find out that my childhood I had experienced trauma that I never knew existed and let me and I think it's I whenever I talk to audiences around the country about this I think it's so important for people to understand that childhood that things that happen in your childhood can carry over to your adult life and, and really rewire you or predispose you to becoming alcoholic and an addict sure um, later on and so I spent I mean Tens and tens of thousands of dollars, and a lot of time in therapy and rehabs, and uh, to figure this out. So let's go ahead and uh, dive right into it. I had a, a great parents are my parents are still married. They, were, you know, great role models for me. Uh, both the grandparents are still married. Great role models. Um, grandfather was a Baptist preacher. Personal friends with Billy Graham. I mean, we had uh, we have Billy Graham uh, sent flowers to my grandfather's funeral. I mean, we were you know yeah. t- tied in. Yeah. In deeply into the Southern Baptist, uh, religion. Yeah. And so I grew up with that. Um, but I had some ear surgeries as a kid and it wasn't until, uh, really just uh, several years ago that I went to a trauma therapist and she said, listen, I don't care about your car accident where you lost your leg and you had a friend die. I don't care about your brother dying of a, of a drug overdose. I don't care about these, uh, these big things that happened in your life. What I care about is, is what happened to you as a child. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Like, Like, Mm -hmm. I had a great childhood. Mm -hmm. She goes, I'm I'm sure you had a great childhood. What happened? I'm like, like, I don't know. What are you talking about? Like, you know, I'm thinking like molestation or, Uh, you know, physical abuse. Like, none of that happened. And she goes, something happened that set the tone for how you reacted to things later on in life. I said, the only thing I could think of was I had some ear surgeries as a kid. And that was it. And and I said, it wasn't wasn't a big deal. It was a long time ago. And she goes, boom that's where your problem started. I guarantee it when you, and this was a phone consultation with her. I hadn't even seen her in person. Mm-hmm. And so she goes, that's where we're going to start when you come in is with your ear surgeries because I guarantee that's where, where your problem started. I was like, what? Like, you're, this is just, I mean, blew my mind. Yeah. So we come in. So long story short, I go in and we have like five or six sessions and she gives me paper and crayons and I'm drawing stick figures because I'm not a drawer. I'm, I'm not an artist. And come to find out I draw this scene that we put up on the wall. It's called a graphic narrative. So if anybody out there is, is looking for maybe an alternative type of therapy or something that you need to get deep and and get get back to um, you know so, some things that happened maybe you know a long time ago in your life, it's called a graphic narrative. If you can find a, a, a therapist that can that can do this, I was able to write down draw the story of what I remembered and then put it up on the wall and then tell it from afar, like I was like it was a movie scene. And it's like I'm living outside of it. It's not connected to me anymore. It's outside of me, and it's it's not a, you know, it happened, but it's not me anymore. Mm. So what came out of that experience was from very early age. So I had uh, six ear surgeries as a kid, and my le- <clears throat> my left ear was kind of the the problematic ear, and I had um, a transplanted eardrum, and I have a uh, three bones in this in this ear are prosthetic bones, and I had to fly out of state for these surgeries. So it was a pretty traumatic thing as a mm-hmm. child, but I. I just tried to make people laugh through it. I was, um, I was the class clown in high in middle school and high school. I was most, you know, voted most outgoing, most school spirited, best personality and class clown, uh, my senior year in high school. And the trauma therapist helped me realize that that was all just an overcompensation Mm -hmm. for as a child. I felt defective. Mm -hmm. I felt different. Mm -hmm. I felt broken. Something's wrong with me, man. I'm man, I'm, I'm unfixable.
0: And there's a lot of fear probably attached to that.
1: huh? Yes. Yes. I'm free. And so I was always a people pleaser. Sure. I wanted everybody to like me. No matter what group I was in, I would I would make sure that I would conform to what they were doing mm-hmm. so that you would like me because I really was just scared of myself. I, di- I didn't I didn't like my own self because I was just I was broken inside. And so I think, you know, I've, I've learned through through my recovery that a lot of people <clears throat> who turn to drugs and alcohol and you have mental health uh, issues, you know, feel that way as as a child. And that stuff can carry over and and really drive us.
0: um, One of our base needs is security, right? And as I learned through my work in the 12 steps is that, you know, security is a base need. And if I don't feel secure as a human being... If I feel like there's something wrong with me and I need to continue to have these operations and I'm not sure what the outcome's going to be. There's a lot of fear attached to that. That really drives that our fundamental need to be secure as human beings and especially as children. If we don't feel secure, the first opportunity that we can engage in something that does, uh, that does give us that feeling of security, mm. although it's temporary... That becomes an immediate substitute for the security that we so desperately needed and didn't have early on. Mm-hmm. Can you relate to that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, another thing that comes up is, um, is also like um, I realized through this process of I felt the need to take care of like my parents or take mm-hmm. care of my mom or take mm-hmm. care of other people's mm-hmm. feelings. And, um, and not really express my, my concerns about You myself. had to be the strong one. Yeah, it's like I need to take care of other people sure. because they're taking care of me. I felt guilty that they were taking care of me and sure. I, was, I was putting their schedules you know, at risk and their, their personal lives my, like my mom and, and that carried it into my marriage. You know, I get married and then my wife need, you know, had, had certain needs and, and wanted attention and I was like focused on my mom. I was like, well, I need to take care of my mom all the time. And that goes back to the childhood of like, well, I need, I I felt like I needed to, I need to make sure that my mom's okay. And um, I couldn't really share exactly what's going on inside with me um, because I don't want to ruffle anybody's feathers. And yeah, that's not good. Yeah, that's not a good way to live. It's um, it's
0: not, and I think that when you get into that caretaking mode, where you're being you're not only responsible for other, and you, uh, my dog Louis, uh, always joins our podcasts. Um, love it. So love he's, it. Yeah, he, uh, I'm I'm convinced that he saw a um, icicle fall down from the house and has completely lost his shit. So um, uh, he'll probably stop. But let me talk about a little bit about what that means when you're uh, in this mode at such a young age uh, to be caretaking and to uh, not be able to feel like you can be um, taken care of. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe did you feel like uh, you were a burden?
1: Yes. Yes. Yes, man. Great. Great word. I mean, it's you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, I felt like I was a burden to the family. Mm-hmm. So I needed to go over and above to try to meet their needs and try to make sure that they were happy and that they were um, <clears throat> that they were taken care of. And that's just, you know, as a little child, I mean, that just puts, you know, oh, so much, that's weight, a lot. So much Man, weight. That's a lot. That. That's a lot. But you
0: spent so much of your life not even considering that as uh, an issue at all, that this was this was this was, this was invisible in your uh, in your mind's eye About what contributed To where you had gotten um, to, that, to, to that point But let's let's rewind a little bit When's the first time you ever drank When's the first time you ever used Tell me about that experience
1: Yeah so yeah, I was kind of a late bloomer mm-hmm. In my group of friends And it wasn't until my After my, my junior year in high school uh, So I used to show up at, at high school parties With chocolate milk I mean, I was, I felt at the time, I I thought I was comfortable in my own skin. Come to find out later, I wasn't. (laughs) But I just, I I did have this rebel, rebel, you know, kind of attitude of like, I'm going to be different. Everybody else is going to be drinking and smoking and I'm going to show up with chocolate milk and I'm going to be, you know, I grew up in the church and I'm going to be the the (laughs) sober guy (laughs) and and the straight laced guy. And so uh, finally, I I finally broke the seal after, right after my junior in high school, we go down to the river with uh, my buddies and we we're partying out the river, and it gets vodka and orange juice. And when that goes down, of course, it doesn't taste great, but it felt so good—just <laughs> this like warm, you know, this warm wave yeah. of just calmness. Mm. Of like, oh my gosh, why didn't I do this sooner? And my first experience was. Um, of course I took too much drank too much no. and I, I go to um, I stumble over to uh, through the rocks into the river and I'm and I'm uh, about to throw up and here it comes and just blah, starts no. throwing up and my buddy Brad's got his hand on my back my buddy Brad on the basketball team with me he, I've known him my whole life pat me on the back he's going John it's all right man what's great is you can just throw it up and the river just washes it right down <laughs> you don't have to clean anything <laughs> up and that was really like a metaphor for kind of my my drinking and using career was sure. kind of like I could just kind of do whatever I wanted to do and I didn't really have to clean up the mess. That was right. it's kind of a uh, kind of set in early on of eh, I just do what I want. I'll let, I'll, I'll let the ripple effect just consequences go out be damned. Go. Yeah.
0: I'm not really hurting anybody and you know, um, yeah. So that's, it, it's a great, um, that warm feeling. And you know, the first time I drank, I had s- uh, an exact, uh, one of the, you know, everything went away. Everything that I, that that, uh, all my fears went away. All of my insecurities went away, uh, and I felt like for the first time in probably forever, I felt okay. I just I felt, felt connected. Felt connected. Yes. And I had uh, a recovering heroin addict tell me once that when he took heroin, it felt like a mother's love. Oh, wow. And that's deep. It yes. blew my mind because that's very much how alcohol felt for me. Wow. I felt that's safe deep. and I felt mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. And that is yeah. deep, right? Like, it, it, it hit me in a place that I couldn't get to this alcohol. Right? In hour In power. Yeah. And so tell me how that manifests. Um, as you, uh, uh, as you go on in life, are you, a, are you sort of a weekend warrior for a while? Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, weekend warrior for a little bit. And then I, I got a girlfriend, my, uh, senior in high school and she broke up with me toward the end of senior year and it was devastating. Yeah. I mean, devastating to me. And I didn't let anybody know, mm. you know, I'm, 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 Mr. Face. I'm Mr. Happy. I'm Mr. Class Clown. Oh,
0: so and you're playing inside, but you ain't going to let anybody know.
1: Man, no way i'm not gonna let anybody mm. know because I, I you know i couldn't even accept myself because yeah. i already felt broken and defective right. and insecure right. and crazy and then and then i get rejected yeah. by a girl yeah. and so i went on this binge of like 35 days of just i mean blackout drunk mm-hmm. for 35 days mm-hmm. and i man it was just like this sense of pride i was <laughs> telling my friends like man i've been drunk like 31 days yeah. i've been drunk 32 mm-hmm. days i've been drunk 33 days mm-hmm. and i was like bill Oh my gosh! I just felt so. I felt cool, you yeah. know. It's, it's like this badge of honor. Yeah. That's what I'm doing. I, I'm rebelling. Absolutely. And uh, and I was just. I was so scared, <laughs> and uh, and and felt. Uh, yeah, just rejected.
0: And 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 at that point, being vulnerable was literally the last thing that you were willing to do to be able to say, "I hurt. I don't feel good. I feel X, Y, and Z. Uh, I can so relate to not wanting to." um let anybody in on how shitty i felt about me yeah yep you mm-hmm. know i can't let anybody know how i actually feel about myself so i'm gonna put on this facade the, the the problem for me was that got exhausting
1: yes man and, and so, yeah, exactly. It gets exhausting, but I was able to. The more alcohol I could put into my system, the more I could, mm-hmm. you know, keep mm-hmm. moving, keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. So, man, if I even think of like, so I go off to college, I go to Baylor University, Private Baptist University, where my parents went, my aunt and uncle went, my cousins went. That was preordained, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I didn't really have a choice. Right. And, but uh, looking at my dorm room my freshman year, if you look at pictures of it, I mean, it was just like scattered with colors and craziness and hats hanging everywhere and posters and neon lights and lights and it was all just it really if i look at it now that i look at it it was just a distraction yeah i was so like distraught inside Mm. um but on the outside it was like hey john's just this like eccentric crazy guy Mm. but it was really like man i'm just (laughs) i'm 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 so scared. I'm so scared of life. <laughs> I live life on life's terms. I'm so terrified. Now I'm in college. Yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. I shouldn't be here. Yeah. yeah. And I had, I had a brother, man. My brother was just like, my brother was super smart. He was like brilliant. And uh, and so to, to follow in his footsteps was, was really hard going off to college. And, and so I, I was terrified. And so I did the frat thing, joined the frat and it was drinking. Yeah. Uh, you know, real quickly, five, six, seven days a week in college.
0: This week's Recovery Revealed segment is brought to you by All Recovery Rings and AllRecoveryRings.com. Would you like a medallion or coin from your favorite recovery program, hand forged into a beautiful ring? Go to AllRecoveryRings.com and choose from over 15 stunning styles, all hand forged by expert craftsmen. What are you waiting for? Do like I did and get your very own recovery ring today. We'll be right back with the rest of part one of my discussion with John Mabry as we break for this week's Recovery Revealed. A chance to pull the curtains back on a particular topic on this life in recovery. We spend a lot of time in 12-step recovery, identifying and working to allow the higher power of our understanding to remove character defects, those things that represent Our finite selves versus infinite God. For simplicity's sake, these defects can be reduced to their lowest common denominators, the seven deadly sins, lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. The human condition is plagued with every one of these mortal flaws to one extent or another, as long as humans have roamed this earth This flock of flaws has accompanied them. To be completely rid of any trace of these flaws, which are so heavily ingrained in society and the human experience, is simply unattainable for us mortals. Yet if you're like me, you chastise yourself every time you catch yourself indulging in one of these human shortcomings. This flies in the face of logic. We're bound to get caught in our humanness and rely on our finite cells and yes, our pet defects. We all have our go-tos. I know I do. It occurs to me that if we were all pure as the driven snow at all times, we wouldn't be human at all. We'd be gods, which many of us impersonated as active addicts and alcoholics. Further, if we operated in absolute perfection, our base instinct to help one another in times of need, from seemingly trivial day-to-day needs we all have to the life-defining moments of relationships we all have, this need would be left unsatisfied. I know from personal experience that being of service to my fellow brothers and sisters has been nothing short of life-changing. The overwhelming realization that living in our gifts means using our innate abilities to serve others. We were literally born to serve and help one another. A life lived in complete selfishness and isolation is quite possibly the worst sentence we can impose on ourselves. In a very real way, I'm grateful for the imperfections we are all saddled with. They provide literally endless opportunities to be of service to one another. My gifts can be the salve you so desperately need in order to get through this moment, this day, and this life. And perhaps there's nothing more gratifying than that. Now back to the rest of part one of my interview with John Mabry.
1: Listen up. March 11th. So we're coming up on the anniversary. March 11th, March, yeah. 2000. Yeah. March 11th, 2000. Everything changed, man. And uh, seven seconds, when a tire blew out in my friend's car. There's four of us in the car, SUV. Nobody was doing anything wrong. No drinking or driving. Beautiful day out. Tire blows out. The car starts rattling, shaking violently, and then it starts veering toward the median, the grass median. As soon as we hit the median, we did a 180. The car just did a 180 and just started rolling. Um, witness reports say we rolled between six and 12 times. And uh, we ended up uh, losing uh, my friend Ashley. Uh, Ashley Furman was her name. 19 years old. She was driving, Didn't couldn't have done anything differently.
0: Don't forget, the way we get the message out to those who still suffer is to give this podcast... A five star rating on your favorite podcast
1: platform, Um, but it was but it was it was it was managed. It was uh, I was able I I didn't flunk Spanish, but I'd take Spanish over again. But uh, I was able to maintain you know relatively good grades. I had great social life, uh, good balance, and by my senior year, man, I had built up this empire, this empire of. I had a, a full-ride scholarship I had earned for – I was a communications major, wanted to go into broadcasting. And so I was doing video work for the athletic team. And so I was filming football games, basketball games, uh, football practices, volleyball, some baseball. And so I got a, I got the same scholarship the athletes got. So I felt like an athlete. Wow, yeah,
0: absolutely. I'm getting the same,
1: I'm getting the same scholarship they get. The class is paid for. I get to go to their counselors. I get to pick classes before any of the students get to pick classes because the athletes get to get the easy teachers, and so I had their you know their counselors tell me what are the easy classes to get into. Man, it was smooth my senior year. I had that going on. Um, I got a check every month in the mail as well. It's, you know, just like the athletes were getting, um, uh, my meal plan was paid for. I was dating a cheerleader uh, for the for the university who was our fraternity sweetheart, and I was social chair of our fraternity riding high and senior year rolls around spring break I set up this cruise we're going from Texas we're going to go out of New Orleans we're going to party in New Orleans during Mardi Gras and we're going to go on this cruise and we do that and we come back from the cruise and we're driving back to school and it was uh, March 11th so we're coming up on the anniversary March 11th Mar- yeah, yeah. March 11th 2000 everything changed man and uh, seven seconds, when a tire blew out in my friend's car, There's four of us in the car, SUV, nobody was doing anything wrong, no drinking or driving, beautiful day out, tire blows out, mm-hmm. car starts rattling, shaking violently, and then it s- starts veering toward the median, the grass median. As soon as we hit the median, we did a 180, the car just Phew, did a 180 and just started rolling. Um, witness reports say we rolled between six and 12 times. And, uh, we ended up uh, losing, uh, my friend, Ashley, uh, Ashley Furman was her name, 19 years old. She was driving, didn't, couldn't have done anything differently. Um, and, uh, two other friends who had relatively minor injuries and then my legs got out the window somehow. Just, uh, I was conscious the whole time and saw my legs just getting crushed, trying to pull them in, you know, trying with all my might to just pull, pull my legs in and I, I couldn't do anything, you know, with the momentum. Car comes to a, comes to a stop in, the, in a field on the other side of the interstate. Luckily, we missed oncoming traffic as we were rolling across that um, uh, eastbound lane of I-45 outside of Houston. And um, the silence was freaking scary as hell, man. Did you go. Because I, I told myself in those moments, like I'm going to die right now. As the car rolling, I'm thinking everything's gonna go to black everything's going to end right now. My movie, the movie of my life was slow motion. We was playing out and it was about to come to an end and we come to a stop and we're up we're laying upside down in the car and I'm going, Oh my gosh, Oh my gosh, Oh my gosh, the car's going to blow up. The car's going to blow up. So I got out as, as fast as I could. And I look back at my friends and there's three friends still sitting in the car. And I'm going, man, if this thing blows up and I'm out here not helping, there's no way I could like live with myself. Mm-hmm. So I crawl back in, got one friend out, uh, other two uh, were kind of, uh, up in the front seat doing their thing and they ended up having to cut Ashley out of the car. They had to land a helicopter on the side of the interstate. They airlifted her out and she passed away uh, before they got her to a hospital. And I got taken to, uh, to the first kind of small little small town hospital and, and what's it called? Centerville, Texas, and then they transferred me to the bigger, bigger one, and College Station, Texas, the regional hospital, where I had the first several surgeries, and then they transferred me home to San Antonio with my parents, and uh, ended up having fourteen surgeries that year, um, on my primarily my right leg, and it was a terrible battle with uh, physical pain, emotional pain, psychological. Um, we took abdominal muscles, took one of my abdominal muscles out and put it in a hole that I had in my foot. And they, we tried, you know, just kind of doing a bunch of patchwork. Come to find out it was just infections kept coming back, internal infections from in, really in, deep in the bone. And um, it got to a point where they wanted to do bone graft, take bone out of my hip and fuse my ankle. And 22, 23-year-old, you know, active, you know, individual with a fused ankle. I'm never going to run again. I'm going to have an ounce of limp. I was like, man, maybe it's, maybe, maybe it's better to just let this thing go. So I opted to, to amputate. And on uh, March, I think it was March 26th of 2001, right at, uh, a year and two weeks after the accident, uh, went in for a ampute- lower leg amputation. And uh, we cut, cut, the, cut my leg off, my foot off uh, below the knee, about six inches below the knee. And it was, at that point, it was all about showing everybody I was okay. It goes back to putting that face on. Oh, you'd been there before. Man, that, yeah. my whole life. It goes back to those surgeries as a kid. Yeah. That's where that trauma therapist goes, what ha- I don't care what happened to you later in life. What happened to you early in life set the tone. For how you were going to then respond. I'm going to – I don't want people to take care of me. I need to take care of other people. Right. I need to make right. sure that I get better fast and right. quick so that I don't put people out. Right. So that was, my, you know, that was my MO was to – I better get better fast. And so I did, man. I was motivated. I was motivated to show people I got a temporary prosthetic and I walked the stage to get my diploma six weeks later. Amputated my leg. Six weeks later, I'm walking the stage, get my diploma. And here's something that, man, here's something I, 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 have, I don't share this very often, but I've been sharing it more frequently. And uh, so my accident was part of a Firestone Ford Explorer um lawsuit back in 2000, mm-hmm. there was tread separating off the Firestone tires. They knew about it, mm-hmm. um, coupled with the Ford Explorer, um, SUVs was rolling. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, it was about nine months after our accident that they recalled millions of Firestone tires across the country and, uh, and around the world. And so the day before I graduated, you take a 23 year old guy who just had his leg amputated six weeks before, and I signed my settlement papers. At a Schlotsky's sandwich shop in Waco, Texas, with my dad and my attorney, and I signed settlement papers for a multi million dollar lawsuit, and I walked the stage the next day, hopped up on painkillers, hung over from the night before, mm. send me out into the real world. Mm. How do you think that's gonna end? How do you, uh, how do you think it's gonna go?
0: Brother, <laughs> are you kidding me right now? That's like you know, pouring gasoline on a
1: fire. It's like you know. I felt I mean, like an athlete. Yep. I had this ego. Like yep. I was dating the cheerleader. Mm. I had the money. I had the the degree, mm. and I had now I had reason to go be outlandish because hey, I just had my leg cut off. If
0: you were me, you would do this too.
1: Yeah, exactly. Go for it, man. You uh, I, absolutely one hundred
0: percent had the greatest alibi because of what you went through. Right. I mean, and boy, exactly. can I can identify with that righteous indignation about, you know, hey, y- you don't
1: you don't have any idea what it's like to be me. Mm-hmm. You have no idea what I've been through. I've seen my leg. My foot was dangling. I mean, my foot was just dangling on the end of my on the end of my shin. I mean, I could see bones and fibers and everything sticking out. I mean, you don't know, you know. Right. Right Nobody's going to question me And then I could get all the pills I wanted Absolutely Because it was like Man, I'm hurting I'm not feeling good yeah. Well, I'm hurting emotionally Really, I'm hurting spiritually and emotionally mm. I'm just completely distraught How
0: long did it take you to figure out That you were medicating The wrong thing?
1: <laughs> Over a decade
0: Yeah, yeah That sounds about right it Took me I 20 mean, years, brother So I can relate I can absolutely right. cool.
1: relate Cool, thanks, man Yeah, no, man I feel so bad <laughs>
0: <laughs> Took me a long, long, long time, brother. You know, uh, my when I was 11 years old, and from that point on, uh, I wrote off God, I wrote off people, and I'm like, I, I can handle this deal on my own. I don't need to live with a God that allows that to happen to people, okay? And clearly, if I get too close to people, they're probably going to go away. They're right? going to hurt. Yeah, you're yeah. going to get hurt. So. The, yep, yep, they'll go away. I'll get hurt. Um, yeah. So it's best if I don't get that close to people again and it's certainly best if i don't trust a god that is going to allow this kind of thing to happen right uh which created this sort of spiritual vacuum that i tried to fill with drugs and alcohol for 20 years and sex and porn and you know whatever
1: else food exercise whatever exactly relationships whatever whatever
0: Yeah, can you relate to that? Was it was it just specifically? And I had a drug of choice. Alcohol was my drug of choice. But uh, were you engaging in other things that you know were uh, that you know uh, helped you feel good for the moment?
1: Yeah. So I didn't want to be not conscious. I didn't make this conscious decision, but it was subconscious. I didn't want to be labeled like a raging alcoholic or a pain pill addict. So I would bounce around. Sure. And so uh, I couldn't focus, and so I moved. So after my uh, accident amputation, signed settlement papers. I moved to Dallas for a year and quit my job there that I had right out of college. Great job. I quit after a few months cause I didn't need a job cause I'm, you know,
0: independently wealthy.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. So I ended up, I said, you know, I'm gonna go help other people. So I found out that I could uh, get a master's degree in rehabilitation counseling and mm-hmm. help people with disabilities get back mm-hmm. to work. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was, on the surface it looked great sounded great on paper Uh it was a way for really for me to not look at my own self Mm -hmm. and to go help other let let me go project my stuff onto other people or let me go help other people and look at their problems but i don't really have to look at my own Mm -hmm. and so i move out to california and that that really separated me from everything i knew in texas everything i knew from back home and and you know my support system now all of a sudden i'm I'm completely removed i lost my leg Um, i'm out of school uh, with all my friends there i've got all this money and I buy a condo, a half million dollar condo on Mission Bay in San Diego, and I'm living in this condo by myself. And I've got this—well, now I had a roommate, a, a friend of mine—but uh, I got this 65-inch screen TV that was, you know, massive at the time. Yeah. I'm like, I got this TV, but what's crazy is I was waking up. I found myself waking up in the in the kitchen, in like four in the morning, passed out, mm. and, and you know, struggling to get to class. And boy, what's going on? And so sure enough, it was, uh, you know, I can't, I can't focus on, on anything. So go to the doctor and get, I get prescribed Adderall for ADHD. That'll help me focus. Mm. So then all of a sudden I'm, I'm like swallowing Adderall pills. Mm. And as soon as, as soon as the 30 days of Adderall pills are done in seven or eight days and I haven't slept for days at a time, um, then I'm on to, you know, <clears throat> uh, marijuana. And if I can't, if I'm, if I don't have that, then I'm on to the pain pills. If I don't have that, I'm on sleeping pills. Mm-hmm. So I'm on, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, I'm just as Constant cocktail. I had some kind of cocktail underneath, underneath the surface, just to kind of numb, numb out. Um, but I had no idea how bad I was. Were you living?
0: Uh, were you, were you, you were still trying to manage it at this point? And yeah. did it feel like you know? For me, it, it very much felt like a Jekyll and Hyde kind of operation, right? <laughs> that I absolutely um, knew that uh, I um, uh, needed to. Um, and you know, I had the self-justification program and again if you were me you would drink too if you were me you would use to You have no idea what it's like to be me You have no idea what it's like inside of my own head and inside of me and to be in my own skin I need this right now I know that if you know if you if you were to really know how I drank if You were to really know how I used you would stop. You would want me to stop. I, I already know this. Right. So I have to make sure that I keep it on the down low. Right. And keep up this facade that I'm, you know, a, a, a normal functioning human being. Um, can you relate to that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. What's crazy. So I had a, my uh, girlfriend was in college at, in Texas at Baylor and I was in San Diego and so we were dated for a year and engaged for a year in separate states mm-hmm. so she had no idea what was going on right i didn't know how bad i was she had no clue no what was idea. because <laughs> right. she would come out for a weekend or i'd see her for a weekend and everything would be fine but then man as soon as we got married in 2004 she moves out from texas to san diego and is like wait a minute Something's not adding up here Right it, it did not And so I had to work even harder To try to hide it Yeah Absolutely Yo. man Yo. Was, Yeah the Jekyll and Hyde it was, Oh man And it's so much harder When they live with you right And I experience That <laughs> It's like <wow. laughs> It's like I need her. Like I need. I, I. need nothing more than stability in my life, right. and she can provide that. Right. But I. I was pushing her away. Bingo.
0: Bingo. Because you're threatening my disease, and if you really figure out how much I'm drinking, using whatever it is,
1: you're gonna leave. Me. Bingo.
0: You're oh. gonna either tell me to stop, or you're gonna leave. Right. And I don't want either of those.
1: Then I'm gonna be rejected again. Bingo. And go back to the. Then I'm gonna be drinking and drugging even more. So now it's
0: just a about how do I make sure that I keep this. At bay, keep this under wraps. Yes, right. As long as possible, as yeah, long yeah. as humanly possible. You know, when I got married, now I'm, I'm uh, married three times, divorced three times. So you talk about oh. fi- yeah, you talk about filling the void, brother. Um, oh. And um, uh, uh, my third wife, she goes, "You literally drink every single day, right?" And it just sort of dawned on her after a year and change, like, oh, my God, you drink every day. And then the questions start, right? Well, how much do you drink? Ba- baby. How much are you spend Exactly. Ba- baby. Baby. I'm just having a few. Baby. <laughs> baby. You know? And she's starting to now count them, you know, while you're having them.
1: So irritates the crap out of you exactly
0: exactly exactly Exactly. so now i've already established that i've only had a few she's counting so i gotta work a rotation program or some sort of program to make sure that she thinks i'm only drinking and i say this all the time and it's just hilarious you know it's it's really hard to outsmart somebody that's already smarter than you and not drunk it just Mm -hmm. doesn't
1: (laughs) work very well no the rationale is just right lush. right can you relate to that yes yes <laughs> the lies yes. oh my gosh the lies how long were you able to
0: keep that up once your wife moved out to san diego
1: so man by the grace of god we are still married today and is, it just it's it's a god god thing that she's stuck with me this long but um, it, it, within six months of us being married, she flew home, she flew home to her parents and mm-hmm. was like, <laughs> I mean, she had, right. I didn't even know it. I was so out of it. I was so mm-hmm. caught up in my own world that I didn't even know that she was going to have a conversation about leaving me sure. after six months. Sure, But her parents, you know, gratefully were, were like, look, you got to do everything you possibly do before you consider leaving. Mm-hmm. And I just had a, a great distraction. Great distraction was I finished grad school and uh, I had an opportunity to to uh, fill in as a, as a body double for my cousin on a TV show. He was going to lose his leg in a in a roadside bomb accident in a, a show called Over There. It was uh, on FX, um, produced by Stephen Bochco, who's a, I don't know, 10 or 15-time M- uh, Emmy Award-winning uh, producer from uh, NYPD Blue and L.A. Law back so in cool. the 80s and 90s and And uh, so goes producing this show, and my cousin's the the lead in it, and he's like, man, I'm going to lose my leg in this roadside bomb accident. You lost your leg on a roadside car accident. Can you take me through what you went through? uh, Help me connect with my character. And I said, yeah, sure, man. I can can do that. And so one thing led to another. They ended up hiring me on for uh, a a technical consultant uh, on set. And so I got hired on for the series, and People Magazine came out, and here we go, man. Ego. Boom. I have arrived once again. Back to high school, you know, high school, mm-hmm. college, every grade. I built up yep. this, this you know, empire in my head that I had all going on. Mm-hmm. Now I'm back in the game, man. I'm moving to shake and shaking. I'm up in L.A. I'm bowling at Phil Jackson's house. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm in parties with weird people like Andy Dick and you know, <laughs> Kay, Kaylee Cuoco from uh, Big Bang Theory. We're sure. hanging out, and man, I'm moving to shake in and shaking. Uh, and I'm in. Uh, I made it into the movie Super Bad. That's uh, my claim to fame is uh, I got a scene in Superbad where I run past Jonah Hill and, and curse at him. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. Scene.
0: That is amazing. And, and you're living now a lifestyle that, you know, uh, many people would uh, give up a lot of things for, and you're feeling pretty good about yourself. Uh, how is that affecting your, uh, your, your drinking, your drug use? How is that, w- what happens there? That's all the time we have for this week. Stay tuned for next week as we drop the second half of my interview with Mr. John C. Mabry. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out, where we share stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. Or drop your host a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com There you can also find links to previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher and Podcast Garden If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast contact me at share at wayoutcast.com See you next time and remember if you don't change, your sobriety day will